Okay, let's uh, let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Uh, we praise you. We give you glory. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you because your word tells us everything we need to know about life, about ourselves, and most importantly, about you. And so, Lord, as we continue this study this morning, just speak to us from your word. Just give us understanding. Give us, Lord, just clarity um, that we would understand how these things apply to our lives. Um, so, Father, speak to us now through your spirit, we pray. Lord, just give me the wisdom and the words as I try and explain the things you've laid upon my heart. Um, but Lord, this morning, may we grow together in knowledge and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you. I hope you're enjoying this, this study through Psalm 119. I, I certainly am myself. And it's because I'm not just teaching this as a study. This is a, a life experience thing. And I'm really spending my weeks just meditating and thinking through these verses. And I, I can't convey the amount of things the Lord is just showing me and revealing. And some of those, of course, are just for me personally, things the Lord is working on in my own life. But I'm hoping that you're, you're gleaning things that are a, a blessing and a benefit and a help to you. As I've said a number of times, that really this whole study is, I kind of, I feel almost God's how-to of how to walk by faith. You know, and there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that give us that instruction that tell us what we're supposed to do but this is one of those great portions of scripture, not the only one, of course, but a great portion that gives us the how to do it. And the beautiful thing is it's laid out as a journey. And we see that as we go through, the psalmist is growing. He's learning more about God. He's learning more about his own experience. He's looking at his life. He's seeing where he has made failures. I mean, go back to verse 25. My soul cleaves unto the dust. I mean, what a statement that is. You know, that acknowledgement that we have a problem that we are naturally inclined to the things of this world and not to the things of God. And yet there's this hunger and there's this desire there. And, you know, as I, I said, and most of the uh, commentators of old are all of the pretty much unanimous opinion that it's David who's the author of this psalm because of so many things that he alludes to. But, you know, David, we're told, was a man after God's own heart. You know, this is a man who lied, who murdered, who committed adultery, who stole, who coveted, you know, but he's a man after God's own heart. That that qualification, in a sense, is not based upon what he did. It was that intent in his heart that he wanted to serve God. He made mistakes. He made some big mistakes. And this morning, many of us are in that position that we could look back at our lives and see that we've made some big mistakes, things that if we were given the chance, we would not do again. Well, praise God, because in this section we're going to be looking at this morning, um, we're going to see a couple of times this mention of the things that have been, the the difficulties, the struggles uh, that we've gone through, but that through those things we've learnt. So we're going to pick up at verse 65. The whole section here, uh, based around the Hebrew letter uh, T-E-T-H. Let me just read Spurgeon's introduction in his commentary. He says, in this ninth section, the verses all begin with the letter Tate. Uh, They are witness, the, the witness of experience. Testifying to the goodness of God, the graciousness of his dealings, and the preciousness of his word. Especially the psalmist proclaims the excellent use of adversity and the goodness of God in, in afflicting him. Uh, the 65th verse uh, of the text uh, so is the text of the entire octave. So in other words, what he's saying is that the opening verse here really just sets the scene of this eight verse group. Now, we've seen already going back over the previous sections in verse 41 to 48... Uh, that's the, the Wavav, uh, Hebrew letter, or the, that section of eight. Um, really, there's that kind of remembering is the idea that is, is there. And that goes on, sorry, that, that's a, a growing in grace, sorry, the way I subtitled that. The next section, Zion, that, gro- that, that remembering of the things that have happened. And then the previous section we looked at last time, from verses 57 to 64, the Hebrew letter, uh, Chet, the H-E or C. Silent C, H-E-T-H. Um, that's really uh, the way I see that the, the development here, the progression. And that's more of a kind of a pressing forward, that realizing that we're not going to stay where we were. We had that kind of respite, if you remember, uh, but now it's moving forward. And we're building on that as we go on from here now. It's almost as if the, the psalmist is beginning to see that God is doing a good working him. Oswald Chambers makes this comment. He says, God's purpose is not to perfect me, to make me a trophy in his showcase. He is getting me to the place where he can use me. Let him do what he wants. 
And I think that that's something that probably that we need to just have in our minds that God isn't just trying to make us a specimen in his showcase. He's not just trying to make us something we can be on display and say, well, this is what a perfect Christian looks like. God is doing this work in us because he wants to use us. Now, even that, what a privilege, because God doesn't need us. I don't know if you've ever realized that, but God doesn't need us. You know, God didn't need any of the characters in Scripture to do the things they did. But by his grace, he chose to use them in the work that he was doing. God had a, a plan that was laid down before the foundation of the world. And God doesn't need any one of us. But he graciously allows us to be involved in, in a number of ways. And one of the, the key ways is through prayer. Paul Bellheimer, one of the books we've got at the back over there, uh, Destined for the Throne, he makes this kind of quite audacious claim. He said that God doesn't do anything except in answer to prayer. And he's given us the privilege of praying. You know, the implication is if we don't pray, God won't do. But thankfully there are always people uh, that God has raised up that will pray. Uh, as I said last time, I think the average Christian spends about four minutes a day in prayer. You know, it's a sad, lamentable fact in one sense. But another thing that Oswald Chambers has said, and I, I think I mentioned this last time as well, um, that he never spent an hour in prayer, but he never went for an hour without praying. And I think that's a kind of a good thing to hold on to. If you can pray for long periods of time, brilliant, do it, it's good beneficial both for you and obviously God uses you through that but the important thing is that we just remain in, in, in that kind of constant relationship with God Paul says pray without ceasing that's how we should be so God wants to use us in a, a number of ways and of course prayer is one of the, the key ways that he does use us but there's almost this realization now as we go into this section that actually all of this has been for a purpose all of the struggles we've had all of those things we've been going through we've been mulling over and the crying out in our hearts lord i want to be more righteous i want to be more like jesus all of that isn't just about ourselves it's because god has a greater plan and he wants to use us to bless others well we'll use it there's a couple of examples we'll come to in a while but just reminded uh, just even speaking now of the uh, an anecdote that was often used of the the sea of galilee and the dead sea and some of you would have heard this before, but the Sea of Galilee, if any of you have had the opportunity to be there, is beautiful. It's really lovely. You know, around the sea, you've got lots of vegetation and there's lots of flowers and it's just a really beautiful place. Very picturesque in, uh, in many regards. And, you know, the Sea of Galilee is fed by the River Jordan. It comes in at the top end and then it comes out at the bottom end and it goes on down uh, the, the Jordan Valley. But then it flows into the Dead Sea. And it stops there. And the Dead Sea never gives out. And the Dead Sea is just barren. It's dead. There's no, there's no life. And of course the analogy there is the life of somebody who takes the blessings that God gives and then gives them out again. It's teeming with life. But somebody who just takes the things of God and then lets it stagnate, it just dies. You know, God has created us that we would help each other, encourage each other. And that verse I mentioned earlier, Galatians 6.2, bear each other's burdens. Over the years, we've seen uh, many people, Joy and I, in ministry that have prayed for things. And, you know, one example we've seen is uh, a couple, many years ago that we knew that they've been praying for children. God blessed them with a the family. And then they stopped coming to church because they wanted to spend time with their family. You know, and it was such a, a heartbreaking thing to see that God had answered their prayer, but the very thing God had given them, they then used as the, the reason why they weren't able to spend time with God's people. And, you know, it's a dangerous thing if you take yourself out of fellowship. I'm not saying they walked away from God, but it just, it wasn't healthy for their, their own growth and, and not a good example for their children either. And that's just one of many ways that sometimes we can seek blessings. Another example I've seen as well, people pray that the Lord would give them employment of a particular type and God answers that prayer and gives them a job and then all of a sudden that job becomes something that stops them coming to church. You know, it's such a shame. So again, we need to realize that in all of this, that God isn't just doing a work in us for our own benefit. There's something that God is doing that will be a blessing to the body of Christ. It's kind of an, an anticipation uh, in these verses uh, of are getting ready for something yet to come, that God is doing something. You might not know quite what it is. In your own life, you might not know quite what it is yet. You know, God has been letting some of us grow in the shade, as it were. You know, and, and maybe sometimes we've mistakenly thought that God isn't interested in using us or can't use us or won't use us. But, you know, there's some fruit that doesn't actually grow well in direct sunlight. It needs to grow in the shade. But at the right season, it will produce the fruit that it's supposed to produce. 
Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. There you are. Which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So Paul is making it very clear that we're God's workmanship. He's, he's doing this work, that word again we mentioned the other week, I think, poema. We're his poem. It's beautiful. That he's written. But created in, G- in Christ Jesus unto good works. You know, works don't save us. Works don't make us more righteous. But works are great evidence that God has done something inside. I remember the old analogy that Chuck Smith used to use. If he said that there was a bomb in the sanctuary and then just remain there just carrying on teaching, you wouldn't believe his statement. But if he kept running past you saying there's a bomb in the sanctuary, you'd probably all realize and respond and run out with him. You know, faith and works. If you just have faith but there's no works, as James tells us, it's dead. There has to be works to go along that demonstrate that the faith is genuine and real. So again, God has created us for good works. And I think as we go into this section now, it's as if the psalmist is starting to realize that you know, a lot of this so far has been quite introspective, looking at our own lives, our own walk with the Lord. And suddenly it's as if the Lord is saying, right, get ready because I'm sending you out. There's work to be done. And that sometimes comes as a shock because we almost feel as if the, the real ministry is getting our own lives right with God, getting ourselves sorted. But, you know, I found through personal experience one of the, the best ways God has used to keep me close to him is serving others. Because you become accountable to people. And you become responsible spiritually in terms of being an example. I mean, Paul makes it very clear in the New Testament we are to be ambassadors. We're to represent God. And so it's a good thing that we end up in ministry of some sort, serving other people. So let's dive into the text. Verse 65 to start with. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according unto thy word. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this verse because there's so much here that we need to just kind of contemplate and meditate and think on. I don't think you're going to find a truer statement in the whole of scripture than this when you stop to think about what he's saying. Because it's saying God has dealt well with each of his servants, for you, for I, for the psalmist here. You know, and God has dealt in just the right way with you and with me. And it might not be the same way. God may have dealt with you in a very different way to the way he's dealt with me. But you know, I'm very different than you are, and you're very different than I am. We have different characteristics, different personalities. But God has dealt in the right way with each of us. It's not that God is, it's not, the verse is not saying God has done good things. That's not what it's saying. It's saying God has dealt in exactly the right way for you as an individual. You know, if God had been too harsh, we might have hardened our hearts against him. But if he hadn't chastened us, we might have continued in sin and never come to know him properly. Just turn, if you will, a few pages to the right to Psalm 139. Great uh, Psalm, this is clearly marked as a psalm of David and it's to be given to the chief musician. This is something that was to be lifted up and the people were to use in their, their song and their worship. David says this, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou hast known my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understands my thoughts afar off. Thou compasses my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Let me just pause for a moment. God knows you just like this. God knows everything about you. Look at verse 4. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. God knows the things you're going to say before you even say it. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hides not from thee, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, 
And that my soul knows right well. We could carry on. You can read the rest of the psalm later if you want to. I encourage you to do so. Uh, that word reigns, by the way, it's, um, it's where we get our English word renal from. The idea of kind of kidneys which purify. Uh, that's the idea of the intense. If you see that word reigns, uh, R-E-I-N-S, um, it's again from the root word we get our word renal from, but implication to do with our kidneys. It implies that part of us that, that is uh, there to purify. But what a statement that psalm is of how much God knows us and understands us. And again, coming back to Psalm 119, verse 65, that you have dealt well with your servant according to your word. You know, because God's word tells us how much God knows about us, he has dealt with us in just the right way. Matthew chapter 6 verse 8, we read that your father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. Jeremiah 1.5, a great verse as Jeremiah is struggling with this um, call that God has placed upon his life. He's just a young man at the time. But then God says, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. God knows us and understands us. And he really does know us better than we know ourselves. It's interesting, I just dug a little bit into this. The Hebrew words that we have translated well, as that has dealt well with thy servant, is a word that's translated in other places as beautiful, best, better, and so on. You know, God has dealt with us in the most beautiful way. He's dealt with us in the best way. It's a better way than any other way of dealing could have been. You know, he's a, a master craftsman and we're his workmanship. He's the potter and we're the clay. Romans chapter 9, 20 to 23 tells us that. Just stop for a moment though. I want you to consider what it would have been like if we'd have been the ones dealing with others. You know, because God has dealt with us so graciously. And we'll talk a bit more about the way God's dealt in a moment. But think about how you deal with other people. You know, so often we're short-tempered. So often we are quite anxious for people to respond in the way we want them to respond. You know, we're quite keen of converting people to our point of view rather than converting them to Christ. Sometimes even in witnessing with people... We're more intent in winning the argument and getting them to submit to us than we are to get them to submit to Christ. Oswald Chambers again makes this statement. He says that often we become a spiritual amateur providence in others' lives. I quite like that because it's saying that we're trying to, to look how we can provide or, or whatever or solve problems for them. You know, and sometimes that's not what's necessary. We, we try and do too much. It's the old butterfly thing, you know. If you want to know more about this, speak to Bob. He's an expert on butterflies. Um, but when a butterfly is going through that process of coming out of the cocoon, when it's just changing uh, and it's chrysalis, it has to go through that struggle, and that struggle forces the fluid into its wings and allows it the strength to fly. And there's this old story, I don't know whether it's true or just an anecdote, but uh, a boy that once saw this, this chrysalis and saw the butterfly struggling and decided just to snip the outside of the cocoon to make it easier for the butterfly to get out. And in doing that, that butterfly never, ever flew. You know, And there's a danger sometimes that we can try to help other people because we see them struggling without realizing that's part of what God's doing with them. You see, we're not in a place to help other people in that way. God is outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. And he knows that sometimes we need to go through those periods, those, those seasons of struggle and difficulty, because it will bring us to that place of blessing. You know, again, we can often be very overbearing on people. We can be judgment, judgmental and intolerant. You know, we can often produce resentment in other people's hearts by the way we treat them or expect them to be. And often we'll drive people away rather than drawing them in and drawing them to Jesus. But, of course, Jesus never does that. Jesus, working through the Holy Spirit in us, will never produce resentment or bitterness. Because he works, as this verse tells us, according to thy word. That's the way that God works. You know, he's dealt graciously because he's gracious. He's dealt patiently with us because he's patient. He's dealt gently with us because he's gentle. In fact, so gentle that Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 42, that he shall not cry, and the idea is not shout, not bellow. He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. I mean, that's 
the one who is working in us and with us. I remember hearing uh, Dave Hunt, who um, many of you will know of, a uh, wonderful man of God, um, great teacher and uh, apologist and so on. But he, I remember him talking about his upbringing, and I remember him saying, and it really hit me and struck me at the time, that he said he doesn't ever remember his dad shouting at him. I thought, wow, what a kind of uh, challenge for fathers, because sometimes we don't know where else to go. You know, we don't know what else to do. And I mean, I've, I've shouted at my children. I've not tried to not do it in an aggressive way, but sometimes just to get their attention. But this verse tells us that, that the Lord won't shout or cry or lift up his voice. Everything he does is gently. In Romans 2 verse 4, we speak, it speaks there of God's kindness and God's goodness. And Paul says that it's his goodness that leads us to repentance. It's not his rebuke, it's not his chastening, it's his goodness. You know, we can go off in sin and we can do whatever we do, but we come to that place of recognizing and realizing God's goodness. And it's that that draws us in. Hebrews 8.12, you know, rather than us being cast off, he said, your sin I will remember no more. David, elsewhere, I think it's Psalm 14 from memory, says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. I mean, what a a privilege that we could be in such a position that we don't get what we deserve. You know, just as his word teaches us, because again, this verse tells us, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according unto thy word. And just consider these things for a moment, that he's led us after him, he's led us beside still waters, he's restored our souls, he's been our comfort even in the valley of the shadow of death. Spurgeon makes this comment, he says, He has done all things well. The rule has no exception. In providence and in grace, in giving prosperity and sending adversity, in everything Jehovah has dealt well with us. It is dealing well on our part to tell the Lord that we feel that he has dealt well with us. For praise of this kind is specially fitting and comely. The kindness of the Lord is, however, no chance matter. He promised to do so. And he has done it according to his word. Just in regard to the way that sometimes the Lord will allow us to go through struggles and sometimes will engineer circumstances, uh, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 tell us, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, again, just thinking of the according to his word. You know, the, the psalmist has already listed throughout this psalm, just up to the point we've got to, ways that he wanted God to deal with him. And he put, he's put in a number of prayer requests. Um, I'm just going to read these to you because I've just gone through making a list of all the specific requests that the psalmist has made. And the good thing is, this is in God's word. So you can use this as your prayer list if you want. I'll put this an email when I send out later. Because I just think this is such a great list. And you can't pray this without being moved. Okay, but just these are the requests that the psalmist so far has listed. And I'm, I'm just for the sake of continuity, I'm not going to tell you all the verse numbers because it will just break the, the flow. Uh, but it will be in the list. All the verses are, are, are just from the verses we've looked at so far in Psalm 119. So we'll start with the one in verse 8. I'll just tell you that where we're starting. But, Oh, forsake me not utterly. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Teach me thy statutes. Deal bountifully with thy servant. Open thou mine eyes. Hide not thy commandments from me. Remove from me reproach and contempt. Quicken thou me according to thy word. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. Strengthen thou me according to thy word. Remove from me the way of lying. Grant me thy law graciously. Put me not to shame. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. Give me understanding. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies. Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. Establish thy word unto thy servant. Turn away my reproach. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Let thy mercy come also unto me. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. Remember the word unto thy servant. Be merciful unto me. That's just the portion we've looked at so far. But what a great prayer. 
You know, whatever situation we're going through, that covers pretty much everything we, we're going to experience. And that's just in the first section of the psalm we've gone through so far. And you can pray that, and then you can tag on to the end of that, according to thy word. Because this is his word. And every request that's in that list, God will grant, God will hear us. Because he's already committed it to his word, that we have this confidence now, we can ask in faith. I mean, that, that's a pretty exhaustive list, and there's still more to go. I just encourage you maybe, just to, when I'll send that out as I say later, but just pray that prayer. Everything on that list, pray. Ask God to do those things for you. Because then you really will be able to pray or, or make this declaration that Lord you have dealt well with your servant according to your word. God will always honour that which we pray when it is in accordance with his word. You know, and just to remind you again, an often quoted scripture here is that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a, a wonderful promise that we hold on to. So this petition now continues into the next verse. It's kind of like anticipation of what's coming. So now we move on to verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. Now I think really what we're seeing here is that God has dealt well with him. Now he would deal well with others. He's been taught a lot already, but now he wants to be able to teach others. But I think just like Solomon, who was given this opportunity to rule over the whole nation of Israel, what does he do? Does he ask for wealth or riches? No, he asks for wisdom. Why? Because he recognizes that if he's to deal well with other souls, he needs godly wisdom to do it. And just so, now the psalmist here, if he is going to impart the things that God has shown him, he needs wisdom. If he's going to be a blessing to other souls, he needs to have good judgment. He needs to have knowledge. It needs to be from the Lord because he doesn't have the resource to do this on his own. You know, and what use really is good judgment and knowledge if it's to be kept just for ourselves and not in our dealings and conversations with others? You know, if you think about it, can there really be any other reason to ask for good judgment and knowledge than the desire to exercise that good judgment towards other people? And that knowledge, if kept to ourselves, you know, we talked earlier about that analogy with the Sea of Galilee and the, the Dead Sea. But I think also there's a great example that we read in the book of Exodus chapter 16 where it speaks of the manna. You know, God allows this bread, this, this manna to fall from heaven onto the ground and it feeds the nation for 38 years or so. But God made it very clear that the, the manna was to be provided for that day. And if they kept on to it, and they kept it overnight, by the following day, it would stink. And of course, some of them, rebellious as they were, just like us, decided to try and hold on to it. And so in the morning, they woke up, and there's this horrible aroma from this manna that's now gone off. Of course, the miracle was that on the sixth day, it would last for two days. They didn't have to do any work on the Sabbath day. But again, I think sometimes if we just take all these blessings, you know, that prayer we just kind of went through in a sense, all those requests, and if we take it all upon ourselves and don't give it out, I think it's just like that, that manner that turns to, to rottenness. You know, the last thing we want really is to be arrogant Christians that think we've got it all right ourselves and don't ever try and in, encourage and, and impart what we've learned to others. And you know, you may think that in your journey so far you've not learnt enough, you've not had enough experience. Well that's fine, because none of us really have. And that's why the request here is, teach me, God, Lord, you've got to teach me judgment and not good judgment and knowledge. Because I believe thy commandments. And I, I see here that there's kind of an implication that he's grown now sufficiently in grace to want to pass on what he's learned to others. You know, and again, that belief, because I believed thy commandments. You know, belief does an incredible thing within us. It stirs us, doesn't it? You know, he was so certain in his own heart. There was this natural overflowing that compelled him to want to share his faith with others so that they might also believe. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John says at the end of writing his gospel, these things have I written that you might believe. See, John had written it down because he believed and he wanted others to believe. And, you know, we're just like that, aren't we? Have you ever read a book that you've really enjoyed and you've tried to tell somebody else about it? You know, or maybe you've heard a, a song or a piece of music or something and you've really, really liked it and you've tried to tell others about it. It goes horribly wrong, doesn't it? 
You know, you get halfway through and somehow you realise you're not conveying what it's done to you to other people. I mean, it's worse still if you actually try and play a piece of music to somebody and you go, listen to this, it's brilliant. And they're listening and there's no response and you go, uh, just wait, there's a bit that's coming up. And there, there's still no response. You know, we like to share the joy that we have and be it in a, a book that we've read or music or whatever. We want to pass those things on. Well, how much more when it comes to things of God? When we believe things, when we really know it's true, should we want to pass those things on? And there's some wonderful examples in scripture of this, but just, just consider one for now. Consider the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She is so stirred by meeting Jesus and this conversation she has. And Jesus speaks about this living water. And he speaks kind of words of truth into her life, explaining that, or, or, or allowing her to see that he knows all about her, just as God knows all about each of us. And what does she do? She goes running back to her friends and she says, come and see. See, immediately she wants to share. She believes and she wants to share. You know, so I think the, the, the statement here, because I believe thy commandments, you, we can almost spin this the other way around. Because we believe these commandments, because we know these things to be true, because God has stirred us in this way, we want to go out. But, oh, let's just pause there, because if we rush out without God, how dangerous it can be. And so we need to pray, Lord, teach me good judgment and knowledge. Again, not just for ourselves, this is for other people. You know, there's nothing worse than over-exuberance. I'm sure you've met over-exuberant Christians before. And it's not helpful. We need good judgment. We need that knowledge of the Lord. Let's carry on. Verse 67 then. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I have kept thy word. This is a voice of experience, isn't it? That's gone through trials, difficulties. Didn't enjoy them at the time, but now looks back and realizes how God used those things. Again, think of the butterfly situation. You know, sometimes we look back and we realize those struggles were worth the heartache, the heartbreak, whatever. You know, let me just read a couple of uh, quotes from Spurgeon because I think they're quite insightful here. He says, often our trials act as a thorn hedge to keep us in the good pasture. But our prosperity is a gap through which we go astray. If any of us remember a time in which we had no trouble, we also probably recollect that then grace was low and temptation was strong. He also says, not that he willfully, wickedly, maliciously and through contempt departed from his God. This lie denies Psalm 18 verse 21. He says, but through the weakness of the flesh, prevalence of corruption and the force of temptation, and very much through a careless, heedless, and negligent frame of spirit, he got out of the right way and wandered from it before he was well aware. The word is used of erring through ignorance. You know, and I think that's the case. You know, when he's speaking here of being afflicted and, and going, also before he was afflicted, he went astray. You know, the, probably the, the best example we've got in the New Testament is the situation with the prodigal son. You consider somebody there that, in a sense, wasn't in a position of affliction, just went off on his own, wanted to run his own life, be the, the, the god of his own life, and ends up in this real predicament, loses everything. And because of that affliction, he's brought back into that place where he comes to his senses, as the text tells us, and he goes back to his father, his father graciously receives him. You know, what a, a great summary, in a sense, of this verse. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. You know, there's another part of this, and sometimes, even as Christians, we can be in positions where we do, or situations where we do go astray. Now, hopefully, as believers, it's not for very long, it's maybe even just, just momentarily sometimes, or a very short period of time. But sometimes we can get so accustomed to God's blessings, that we forget how much we rely on them, and how much they impact our lives. And suddenly, to find ourselves in a position where those blessings are taken away, or that we block that. I mean, Psalm uh, 66, verse 18. It's a verse that says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Can you imagine putting yourself in a position where you stop God hearing you? 
It's not, it's not because God doesn't want to hear you. It's not that God just puts his fingers in his ears and goes, la, 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 la. No, it's not that. What it is, is that God is so holy and so pure, he cannot allow iniquity into his presence. And if you are carrying in your heart and your mind things that are not of God, that you know are wrong, that are sin, God says, I'm sorry, I can't entertain your request. I can't allow you to come before the throne and submit your prayer and request all the time you're bearing iniquity in your heart. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we allow ourselves in those situations where we actually become a prevention of God's blessings rather than putting ourselves in a place where, as we were singing this morning, we surrender all. And then God can pour his blessings upon us. And when we're in those places, I think there's that kind of wake-up call as suddenly we realize what life would be like without God. I don't know about you, I've had there's been moments in my life when things have happened and I've allowed things in that I shouldn't have done and suddenly you get a glimpse of what your life would be like without God. Uh, maybe you've never had that, but I tell you, it's horrible. It's frightening. To think of the person that you would be without God's grace. You know, we, we also sometimes can deceive ourselves into thinking that, you know, well, actually we're, we're quite a nice person. And, you know, no, not without God you're not. It's God's grace. It's what he does in you. You've only got to spend a short time with people of the world to realize the lies, the deception, the maliciousness. There's just, just so much that's, that's horrible. You realize what God does in our hearts and minds and lives. Oswald, Chamber, Oswald Chambers makes a, uh, another comment which I thought was applicable. I just happened to be on the 7th of October, just going through this week, and it just, just stuck out at me. He said, sin is a fundamental relationship. It's not wrongdoing. It is the wrong being. Deliberate and emphatic independence of God. He said this, which I thought was good. He said, the Christian religion bases everything on the positive, radical nature of sin. Other religions deal with sins, but the Bible alone deals with sin. Uh, And again, this is it, because God wants to show us the nature of sin, that we really fully understand it. And again, the verse tells us, before I was afflicted, I went astray. And by going astray, we realize just what it's like without God, what it's like without his grace and mercy. But once we've realized it, we can then say with the psalmist, but now have I kept thy word. That's a verse 68, one of my favorite verses in scripture. Thou art good and does good. Teach me thy statutes. You know, I, I wrote a song, we've sung it once or twice here, but it was on the uh, that boxing day of the tsunami. Um, some of you remember it many years ago now. And, and we woke up and we were hearing the news report and everything else. And I kind of knew what was coming. What, there was going to be this barrage of people that were saying, why would a God of love allow that? And you know, I'll be honest, I see here, I don't have a good reason for that specific event. Why did God allow that? I can point to various verses in scripture that tell us that for now Satan is the god of this world, he's the prince of the power of the air, that he for now has title and control of this world. That goes part way to answering the question. But the reality is, at the end of the day, God is good and does good. God will never and can never do anything that is not good. And particularly in regard to our own lives, God is always just, he's always fair, he's always righteous. And I think we mentioned this at Bible study the other night, that none of us are going to get to heaven and feel that God was unjust in his dealing with any particular situation. We will see that God was good and he has always done good. And once again, just to highlight that God's character is good. You know, it's not, as we said earlier, it's not that God just does good things, that he does good things, but he does good things because he is goodness himself. He is the source of everything good. Again, Spurgeon says, even in affliction, God is good and does good. This is the confession of experience. God is essential goodness in himself, and in every attribute of his nature, he is good in the fullest sense of the term. Indeed, he has a monopoly of goodness, for there is none good but one, and that is God. His acts are according to his nature, from a pure source flows pure streams. He also says, teach me thy statutes. He says the same prayer as before, we've seen this already three or four times. He says, backed with that same argument, he prays, Lord, be good and do good to me, that I may both be good and do good through thy teaching. You see, Again, there's an implication here that all of this is being 
a preparation for what God is going to lead the psalmist onto. And in our lives, as we've had this journey, I hope God is stirring your heart. That there's been a lot of, as I said, introspective looking at ourselves and what God is doing with us. But start to realize now that there's a much bigger picture that maybe we've not seen yet. And that is that God wants to use us, every one of us. But notice what verse 69 tells us. The proud have forged a lie against me. What's our response? But I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Again, this is uh, just from Spurgeon. He says, the proud have forged a lie against me. They first derided him. That was in verse 51. Then they defrauded him. Verse 61. And now they have defamed him. To injure his character, they resorted to falsehood. They could find nothing against him if they spoke the truth. So they forged a lie as a blacksmith beats out a weapon of iron. Or they counterfeited the truth as men forge a false coin. Yeah, my mind just went to the situation with Daniel. Daniel, this aged man by the point we get to chapter 6. And then we read of this, this king that's appointed by Cyrus, Darius, to rule over the area of Babylon. And obviously Daniel gets on really well with the king, but three times a day Daniel goes and prays. And the other leaders don't like it. They don't like the fact that Daniel prays to his God. And so they concoct this story, or they set up this whole trap to try and entrap Daniel by saying that you can only pray to a certain God. You know, this idea, and then they come back and they say, well, Daniel's been breaking your commando king. You know, it's the same idea. They just wanted to find a way to pull him down. Why? Because he was just a class apart because of what God had done in his life. And they didn't like it. They could see something, and it just riled them. You know, a godly character doesn't fit in well with ungodly people. You know, and if you put yourself amongst ungodly people, you'll soon stand out and they will not like you, they will not respect you, they'll not want to be with you. You know, it's an intentional thing on their part. They were designed, they wanted to inflict wound. But again, rather than becoming beaten by such things... I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Even those things, now the psalmist is saying, turning him towards the things of God. Even to the point that we should expect to see those kind of things. But I will keep thy precepts. Whatever comes, whatever the devil would throw at us, we will turn to the Lord. I just want to remind you again, we we looked at the beginning of our study, these different words we have here. Precepts comes from a word which means to place in trust. You know, God has given us his truth and expects us to respect it. He's given us heavenly wisdom. He's entrusted it to us. We're custodians, if you like, of this life-giving knowledge. So he's saying that the proud of forged to lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts. I will keep the things you've entrusted to me, the truth you've revealed, the things that the world doesn't yet know or understand. The truth that this world is not our home. The truth that God is coming to judge the world righteously. The truth that he will come and take us to be with him. That our home is with him in eternity. That we will go to heaven. We'll stay there for at least seven years and then we'll come back with Jesus at the time of the second coming. And then we'll rule and reign on earth with him. These are some of the the precepts, some of the things the Lord has entrusted to us. And so when we find that the proud have forged a lie, when we look at it in the scheme of the bigger picture and look at the precepts of things that God has given us, we shouldn't be moved or shaken. You look in the big picture and you see how much God has planned already and what is already laid up for us in heaven. Why should we be at all worried about the lies they forge? And remember too, that we don't have to vindicate ourselves. Because God is the one who is a righteous judge. And God will deal with others. It's not our business to worry about setting the record straight. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We don't need to step in and try and do God's work for him. So the last few verses, then. Verse 70, their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. Notice the the contrast between those last two verses. The proud of forged lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. That's where my heart is. And in contrast, their heart is as fat as grease, 
but I delight in thy law. You know, that, that just kind of quite a graphic picture, isn't it? You just think of their heart being, you know, you just think of the, the cholesterol involved here. You know, it's not a good situation that their heart is, is about to have some major coronary. It's not a good place to be. But I will delight in thy law. Again, Spurgeon says, their hearts through sensual indulgence have grown insensible, um, coarse and groveling. But thou hast saved me from such a fate through thy chastened hand. Yeah, and the world does become just so hardened to the things of God. Consciences become seared as with hot irons and people don't respond or become concerned at the iniquity that abounds around them. You know, things that once your average person in the street would have been horrified at now are just everyday things and nobody seems to worry. That's the world we live. That, that's, you know, their heart is as fat as grease. You can't get through to it. We carry on verse 71. It is good for me that I've been afflicted that I may learn thy statutes. So the second mention now of this being afflicted, you know, the first time we, we find there is that because I was afflicted, I'm now not going astray and now I'm keeping thy word. And again, the same thing here. It is good for me that I've been afflicted that I may learn thy statutes. You see, it's not just that being afflicted drives us back to God, but it gives us a hunger and a desire to know more of God. Another comment of Spurgeon, even though the affliction came from bad men, it was overruled for good ends. Though it was bad as it came from them, it was good for David. He benefited him in many ways, and he, it benefited him in many ways, and he knew it. Whatever he may have thought while under the trial, he perceived himself to be the better for it when it was over. It was not good to the proud to be prosperous, for their hearts grew sensual and insensible. But affliction was good for the psalmist. Our worst is better for us than the sinner's best. And it is bad for sinners to rejoice, and good for saints to sorrow. A thousand benefits have come to us through our pains and griefs. Among the rest is this, that we have thus been schooled in the law. So I love that that comment there he makes, that our worst is better than the sinner's best. I've heard it said before that, you know, you look at our life now and you think of the light of eternity and this is as bad as it's ever going to get. For us, it's only going to get better. But you think of, for those whose hearts are as fat as grease, those who just turn their ears away from God, this is as good as it's ever going to get. It will only get worse. What a contrast. We're just diametrically opposed, going in totally different directions now. Again, just encourage you with that part of verse 71 at the end, there, that I may learn thy statutes. Yeah, this isn't just reading the Bible. I encourage you strongly to read the Bible. Just let it wash over you. But also to learn. That means meditating. Letting these things sink in. And let me stress again, I think I say every week, but just take one verse out of this psalm and just read it every day. Just as that, for that one day. And the next day, take another verse and read it that day. And just allow God's statutes to start imprinting your mind and your heart. It will change you. And so verse 72, just to conclude for this morning. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. I mean, the world can't begin to understand that. But we start to realize that gold and silver are just so temporary. You know, you look in the beginning of the book of Revelation, and what do you find? People would rather buy bread than gold. Because gold won't feed them, gold won't help them. And when the world's money systems collapse, which eventually they will, probably not that long from now, looking at the way things are, what a mess the world is going to be in because they've held on to and hoped in these things because they've desired thousands of gold and silver what a contrast for us because we've realized that god's law is better than anything i I like this as well and just one more quote of spurs he says the law of thy mouth he says a sweetly expressive name for the word of god it comes from god's own mouth with freshness and power to our souls. Things written are as dried herbs, but speech has a liveliness and dew about it. We do well to look upon the word of the Lord as though it were newly spoken into our ear. For in very truth, it is not 
decayed by years, but it is as forcible and as sure as though newly uttered. You know, and that uh, it's just so true. You know, these words that we're reading—they're not just historical things that are written down. And you know, this is spirit and it's life. The law of thy mouth. This is God speaking to us out of His Word. It's better than thousands of gold and silver. You know, and you've only got to look at all the the rich celebrities and people that have all sorts of wealth. How happy are they? How many of them end up committing suicide or dying of a drug overdose or whatever else? It didn't solve any problems. I'm sure there's not any one of us that wouldn't want to be a little better off financially. But, you know, all that aside, when that trumpet sounds and we're called to meet the Lord in the air, not one of you are going to be concerned about your bank balance. It won't matter. You know, it's just what we have in the things the Lord has given us, is eternal. It will never fade. It will never pass away. The word of the word of God stands forever. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just thank you this morning for these things. Thank you, Lord, that you have revealed just so much in your word that is so applicable to our everyday situation. And Father, we do acknowledge and we thank you that you have dealt well with us. Lord, you've dealt with us in just the right way. And Father, I personally thank you that with me, you haven't been too harsh. You haven't just cut me off when you should have done. But because of your grace, because of your mercy, you've been gentle and you've been patient. And you've allowed me to see. And Lord, through those afflictions, Lord, I've realized how much I need you. And Lord, for all of us this morning... Just You've dealt with each and every one of us in just the right way for our own particular characters and personalities and situations. And Lord, you're graciously continuing to lead us and to move us on. But Father, help us also to realize, as we've seen this morning, that all of this is not just for us. And Lord, we ask again for good judgment and knowledge. Not just that we would take it in for ourselves, that we would become wonderful Christians. But Lord, we would take these things and Lord, use them to encourage and edify others. Lord, whatever you give to us, may we pour it back out to you. Lord, just as that water from the well of Bethlehem that was brought to David. Lord, may we pour those blessings back out. That others would Lord be enriched and blessed and encouraged because of what you've done in our lives. Father, I thank you for yesterday, for the testimonies that were shared at the baptism. Lord, as people got to hear of what you've done, and Lord, the work that you've accomplished, the blessings you've poured out, Lord, were poured out for others. Lord, may that bear fruit in itself. Father, for all of us, help us to realize that this journey we're on is not just about us and getting our own walk right, but it's about, Lord, overflowing into the lives of others. So, Father, help us as we go from here today, it is to keep walking by faith that you would be honoured and glorified with every step we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.